Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Just to give you a heads up, we're going to be in Genesis 3, and we're going to be in Matthew 4 today, so you might want to sort of mark both and be ready for both. With that said, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As we continue in the book of Genesis, in really these foundational chapters, we're now moving into that chapter where Adam and Eve, who were created in perfect communion with God, living in his place, the garden with him as his people, Adam as a kind of prophet, priest, and king there, with his wife, whom God has graciously given him in the original creation, dwelling with God in his glorious presence, knowing that blessedness. We end Genesis 1 and 2 with that story, and we pick up Genesis 3, where it begins to turn in a direction that is damning. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word as we read this and spend time thinking about it, that your spirit would help us to hear what it is that he's saying to the churches, not only to Israel in the wilderness as she has departed Egypt in the Exodus and is headed to the promised land, but your people in every age. Help us to understand that our adversary, the devil, is real and active and attempting to deceive us. Help us to understand his schemes, his strategies, and to resist him. And Father, help us to, above all, look to Christ who resisted him perfectly on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning as we continue in Genesis, I really want to consider two temptations. I asked you to sort of put your hand in Genesis 3 and in Matthew 4 because I want to consider two temptations. First, I want to consider Adam's temptation to sin in the garden at the hands of Satan. Second, I want to consider Jesus' temptation to sin in the wilderness at the hands of Satan. So I want to look at both of those temptations, the majority of our time being spent on the first because we are walking through Genesis, but coming to Christ's temptation only because I don't want to walk through verses 1 through 5, which is what we'll look at this week, the temptation, and next week, the actual fall we'll look at, But I don't want to look at the temptation of Adam and then just say, okay, have a great Sunday. And just leave it there. I want to bring us to Christ. So let's begin with Adam's temptation in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. That's really where we're looking. And as we walk through verses 1 through 5, I want to consider three realities in the temptation of Adam. Three realities in the temptation of Adam. First, Satan is a real adversary. So I want to consider that Satan is a real adversary. We're going to look at that in verse 1. Second, I want to look at Satan's deceptive strategy. 
or the way Satan schemes. And we'll actually see sort of three steps to his scheming or strategy. We'll look at that in the second part of verse 1 and through verse 5. And finally, I want to consider Christ's temptation, or excuse me, before we move on to Christ's temptation, I want to consider Adam's sort of conspicuous silence. You know what I mean by something being conspicuous? It grabs your attention. It stands out. And Adam's silence here in this scene is conspicuous. So I want to consider that. Then we'll move to the temptation of Christ. So let's look first at what I said is that kind of first subpoint. Satan is a real adversary. He's a real adversary. Look at Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan is a real enemy, and we're told here that he is crafty. In other words, he offers a kind of wisdom. That's what it's going to come out. He offers a kind of wisdom that can look appealing, but really it's foolish. He knows how to deceive, how to twist, how to convince you that his foolishness is wisdom. And in our passage, Satan has taken the form of a serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Somehow he has employed a serpent to slither into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. Now this would stand out to Israel. First of all, it would stand out to Eve. It isn't normal for snakes to talk. The garden isn't some magical place where the animals spoke with them prior to the fall. So it would have stood out. But it would also have stood out to Israel. Remember I told you that Moses is the one who's writing Genesis. And Moses is writing Genesis to the people of Israel after the Exodus as they're in the wilderness and headed to the promised land. He's writing this. Now why would it have stood out to Israel? Because she left Egypt. What difference does that make? Because she was being enslaved and persecuted by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had a serpent in his crown. Namely a cobra. And on a staff. And we won't get into that. You know some of the story there. Further, it would have stood out to Israel. Because in Leviticus, a serpent is an unclean animal. And a serpent cannot come into God's temple. And if you remember, the garden is a kind of temple where God dwells with his people. And so Israel would have known this is reminding us in some sense of wicked Pharaoh, an unclean animal coming into the temple, and Adam's job as a priest to guard it. We're being signaled that this serpent, in other words, we're being signaled that the serpent should not be here in the garden, that Adam should be dealing with it. But here's what I don't want you to miss. Satan is a real and personal adversary. He's a real and personal adversary. He was an angel who rebelled against God along with his host of wicked followers. You can read about it in Revelation 12. And Satan was thrown down from heaven by Michael, the archangel, and the other holy angels. He is called in Revelation 12 the great dragon or that old wicked serpent. That's how Satan's referred to in Revelation 12, 9. He is the tempter. Jesus refers to him as the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. Zechariah 3. He is the one who seeks to steal and kill and destroy And as believers, we're at war with him. His war is largely a truth war. Yes, Satan and his demons are spoken about as powerful and wicked beings. They are, and they're real. In Scripture, we see demons doing things like causing weather events, striking people bodily, Inhabiting people and inhabiting animals. 
We see them manipulating human kings and kingdoms to oppose God's people. Blinding the minds of unbelievers. Lying to and spreading false doctrine among believers. And tempting people to sin. I mean, there's more activity, but that gives you some idea. Satan's main battle is for our hearts and minds. He will even come as an angel of light to do so. Satan comes to twist and contradict God's word in order to confuse and harm Christ's bride, the church. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He leads weak people like us into all manner of error and sin and wickedness. When you look around at the nations, those nations that are being listed in Psalm 2, of which every human nation is, one, those nations that plot against God and his anointed in vain, when you look around at them and you see their wickedness, do not be deceived. It is as demonic, as satanic as you think it is. Don't get me wrong. As those who are guilty and corrupt in sin, our sinful flesh is a real problem as well. It's a real problem as well. And we'll press into that a bit more as we go along. Not today, but in this series. How do I distinguish my own flesh from Satan's temptation? To some degree, I'm going to tell you an experience you probably can't. But please don't be lulled to sleep by this kind of naturalistic, materialistic philosophy that pervades our land that makes you underestimate that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is. He's real, and he's out seeking people to devour. That leads to my second point regarding reading to Satan's strategy. Satan is a real adversary, and Satan has a kind of deceptive strategy. Now, Matthew Henry, uh, one of the Puritan commentators, is really helpful in this passage. And he says that we see three parts of Satan's strategy in Genesis 3, and those three parts continue to this day. And I think he's right, and so I want to look at the three parts of Satan's strategy that we see. The first one is that Satan questions, here's the first strategy Satan uses, Satan questions God's word. And most specifically in this passage, he doesn't just question God's word, but he questions whether something really is a sin. Questions whether it's really a sin. So look at Genesis 3.1 again. And we're really looking at the second part of 3.1. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden satan begins by questioning god's word and really twisting god's word in doing so he's questioning god's character in other words here's essentially what he's asking eve is god keeping good from you Is he one who really has provided well for you, who's with you and is good to you that you can trust? Did he really say, did he actually say? He's trying to convince Adam and Eve that God is unreasonable, and this is the overall passage I'm getting at, unreasonable, unloving, and stingy in some way. God's not really good. He's keeping something good from you. Here's Eve's response. It's interesting. Let's look there. Verse 2 And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. See, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You've got this incorrect. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God said that. But God said, now pay attention to this language. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now this is interesting because, we'll put it this way. Eve is dropping an emphasis, and she drops the emphasis in two ways. Actually, twice she drops an emphasis that you find in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. So before we go on, look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. 
because God has told them about these trees. And he had told them in verse 9 that they could eat of any tree. But look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden that comes up. God has made you these trees. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice that language, though. May surely eat. In the Hebrew, it actually says you may eat, eat. It's emphatic. You may certainly eat. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, you shall die, die. It's emphatic. Eve is going to drop the surely in both cases. She's going to drop the emphasis in both cases. So first, Eve drops the, you may surely eat. Look at Genesis 3 again in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Not we may surely eat, we may certainly eat, but we may eat. She just takes one step away from what God has promised. One step away from what God has promised. In doing so, she seems to be, at least the narrator is telling us, there seems to be here a beginning of a distance between God and Eve in which she's beginning to question his goodness. Now look what it goes on, really his bountiful provision. Go on to verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which did you read that in? 217 no neither shall you touch it is not there lest you die now here she drops something it's not you will surely die lest you surely or certainly die it's lest you die she's dropped one again it sounds like this well he did say we can surely eat has been exchanged for well we can eat God has given us this amazing bounty kindly and graciously. He's given us all this and he said, we can surely eat it. That's been transitioned to, yeah, we can eat it. The prohibition that's added, nor shall you touch it, and the dropping of the other die seems to be changing the story a bit as well. Moses seems to be indicating us that Eve is buying into Satan's lies, she's beginning to believe that God is a restrictive miser who keeps good things from his people. And what's interesting is she's beginning to question that God is really one who will, in holiness, judge. She's dropped that certainly die to, yeah, we'll die. Well, he did say we could die, has been exchanged for, God said, we will surely die. We will certainly die. For he is a holy and just God who will not let sin go unpunished. That's the implication of Genesis 2.17. She's just minimized that. Matthew Henry tells us what's happening here. Here's what he says. Satan teaches men first to doubt and then to deny. He makes them skeptics first and so by degrees makes them atheists. Friends, this is how Satan begins every temptation he brings your way. He causes you to doubt God's character and God's word. He makes you into a skeptic first. That sure looks good for me. Perhaps God is keeping some good from me. Is this really a sin? And is sin really that offensive to God? Can't I enjoy that? even in rebellion against God's word and still claim to be at peace with God. And step by step, we become atheists, whether atheists by ideology or just atheists by living as if there is no God and there is no law. So Satan's first strategic step is to cause you to question whether something really is sin, whether God really has said His second step in his strategy is that Satan denies that there's any real danger in sin. That there's any real danger in sin. So look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. Interestingly, Satan quotes Genesis 2.17 properly with surely die or die, die, which Eve doesn't, but he negates it and says, it's not true. You won't die. You won't surely die. Satan questions God's holy judgment. He denies that they'll suffer the penalty of death. Think of the scene. Satan rebelled, and yet he's not dead. You won't die either. You won't die either. Now, as we move through Genesis 3, you're going to see that they're misunderstanding what's being said about death here. And that's going to become clear. It's going to be death in three kinds of ways. There's going to be spiritual death. There's going to be physical death from dust you came to dust you shall return. And there will be eternal death, the second death, the death of judgment in hell. And we'll look at that as we go through Genesis 3. But Satan's move here is clear. Here's what he's basically saying. There is no sting in my tail. There's no poison in that fruit. There's no consequence in sin. There's no justice in God. If you buy the lie that sin will not have consequences, a lie told by the false prophets, a lie told by Satan, a lie told by your own heart to you, then you will likely fall into that sin. Hey, what can this sin really hurt? How can a little soft pornography really cause me any problems? I mean, this smut is in all the shows now. What am I supposed to do? Watch less television? That seems unreasonable. If I click on that clickbait, telling me to check out some scantily clad man or woman, what trouble will that really cause me? It's just a quick look. If I cross a couple lines in a dating relationship, especially when I think I love this person and I'm committed to them, how can that really be harmful? See, if I enjoy this woman's attention or this man's attention at work, who I'm somewhat attracted to, and I like the way they pay attention to me, but I'm not pursuing an affair. I'm just enjoying a little bit of their attention and their flirtation. What's the problem? How can that hurt? I'm just enjoying someone's company. I'm not saying don't have opposite sex friends. You know exactly what I'm saying because you understand when the line's being crossed in your own heart and mind. You might justify it as long as the day is you might justify it but you know what's happening in your heart and mind. If I drink a little too much alcohol once in a while, what does that really hurt? I mean, it isn't a sin to drink alcohol, and I don't drink too much on purpose. No one probably usually does if they're a believer trying to drink responsibly. I realize that in worldliness, there are all kinds of people who drink too much alcohol on purpose. But oftentimes you don't, but you still overconsume, and you write it off like it's no big deal. If I skim a little money off my boss, and you might go, well, that's bad to skim money off my boss. I wouldn't do that. How about this? Your boss pays you by the hour. If I skim a little time off of my boss, do something other than what he's paying me to do. You've just taken money out of his pocket, by the way. Or if I withhold a little from the IRS and my reported income. What difference does that make? If I lie to my parents. Or my friends. Or my spouse. What's the big deal? Who is it really hurting? If I gossip about this person. Or... Even what I'm saying is true about this person, but I'm withholding just enough information to make myself be the hero of that story 
and the other person be the problem, to ensure that people know I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. But what's the problem? What's wrong with that? Is it really a big deal? Here's one, young people especially. If I vainly keep posting more pictures of myself on social media, I mean, why do you believe everybody needs to look at you all the time? Why do you believe that? Man, everybody needs to see what I'm doing every day. There's probably a way in which your heart is so curved in on yourself, just in that act alone, you ought to be circumspect. But if I'm vainly doing it, here's how you know, because I'm looking for likes and comments. What do people think about me? How's that harmful? to? I mean, everybody's doing it. You know what it does to your heart when people like and comment. If I regularly miss the Lord's Day worship for other matters, particularly for my kids' sporting events, or maybe lately out of fear of a virus, does that really hurt anything? I mean, what's God commanded me to be there, but I got other things that are important. I mean, God is forgiving. Surely he won't judge me for this. It isn't a big deal. Only legalistic people get lathered up about this kind of stuff. That's what we tell ourselves. I will certainly remain at peace with God because grace abounds far more than sin. Look, there are plenty of pastors out there who are ready to tell you peace, peace, where there is no peace. Yes, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's true. But if you employ that as a cover for unrepentantly sinning, Paul is clear that you've missed his point. You've missed the graciousness of the gospel. The grace of God in the gospel does not just save sinners from the penalty of sin. It makes us new in Christ and saves us from the power of sin. Here's the point. Little by little, little by little, Satan encourages you to sear your conscience, to move further from God, to deny there will be any real consequence until you finally reached apostasy. Scandalized your family and your friends and the church and the name of Christ. Folks, no one, I've been doing pastoral ministry for 21 years, well, I've not yet met the person who says, you know what I want to do someday as a Christian pastor? What? I want to commit apostasy. I'd like to walk away from the Lord in unrepentant sin and wreck my family and wreck my life and be excommunicated by the church. That's what I'm gunning for. No one's ever come to us with that. Ever. The reason it happens is because little by little they start believing Satan's lies and we tell them, hey, you probably should turn here. And they say, oh, that's, you're just being overboard. Hey, we, we're watching you journey further away from Christ. Go the other way. Oh, you're being legalistic. You start believing Satan's lies, you will step by step walk away from the Lord. So Satan causes you to question whether something really is a sin. He causes you to question whether sin really has any consequences. And finally, there's one more step in Satan's strategy that brings it all home. Satan asserts that there's a lot of profit in sin. There's much profit in it. It's some good, right? You're always going after some good. The question is whether you actually know what the good is. And Satan's going to tell you, this sin, that's good for you. Look at what he says, Genesis 3, 5. Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here is the final step of Satan's temptation. This sin and this rebellion is good for you. There's much profit in it. You'll be like God. Now, I'm going to get to this phrase more later in Genesis 3, like God knowing good and evil, but here's what I want you to understand right now. What Satan is telling Eve is that you will be improved in some way by this sin. It will improve your life. You know... My marriage is poor. Mine's not. 
I'm speaking hypothetically. <laughs> my marriage is poor. My wife doesn't pay attention to me. She's not that interested in me anymore. I don't find her that interesting anymore. But this woman at work, man, she, she's something. She gives me the kind of attention a woman should. She's kind. She's interesting. She is, to use language from Proverbs 5, delicious to me. She's good for me. I'm going to pursue that. Because that's how it looks. This show, it's a little bit inappropriate, but it's not totally over the line. I don't know what you think your line is. Unfortunately, probably not. The bar's probably too low. I mean, you could probably, you know, just slither over the top of it on your belly. But it's just a little over the line. I'm going to watch it. Then you watch your heart get caught up with it. Then you ante it up a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. This is how it happens, folks. It's good for me in some way. I need a little rest and relaxation. I'm tired from work. I'll mindlessly entertain myself and take in whatever garbage Hollywood has to give me. Satan tells Eve you'll be improved. There is prior to the commission of sin the lie that tells us we will be bettered by it. Prior to the commission of sin is the lie that tells us we will be bettered by it. The good life, the abundant life, is not found in God's restrictive and stingy laws. It's found in breaking your covenantal bonds and living free to gratify your own desires. Further, Satan teaches you that the good life, the abundant life, is not found in God's wisdom, but it's found in your own wisdom. That is the heart of temptation. Real life is not found in communion with God, but in rebellion against him. Freedom is not found in his law, but in your lawlessness. Happiness is not found in his covenant bond, but somehow outside of it. Is that not the anthem of our culture? Indulge whatever pleases you. Life is found in your indulgence in your fleshly desires. And you know, only the worst puritanical sort of folks would tell you otherwise. I mean, this is who you are. It's your personality. You were born this way. And you know, it's important that you do you. And Satan and the flesh relentlessly keep beckoning us this way. So in the temptation of Adam, we've considered the reality of Satan, the strategy of Satan, and finally I want to consider Adam's conspicuous silence. Do you notice what you didn't see in Genesis 3, 1 through 5? You didn't see Adam saying or doing anything. He wasn't even a character in those five verses. Here are a couple questions that ought to arise. Where is Adam in all of this? Why does Satan target his wife? What should Adam be doing in this scene? Satan has targeted Adam's helper, his complement, his companion, his covenant partner, his wife. Satan has targeted Eve, the weaker vessel, the wife Adam was supposed to care for and protect. As prophet, Adam was to speak the truth to himself, to his wife, and to the serpent. As priest, Adam was to guard the garden from wicked and unclean serpents like this. As king, Adam was to subdue all the creatures of the earth. Satan is attempting to drive a wedge between Adam and his wife and between man and God. Adam should have said, get behind me, Satan. Adam should have crushed his head and stopped his wicked mouth. But rather, Adam let him speak and deceive his wife. And here's the question, where is Adam? Well, look at Genesis 3, 6. Genesis 3, 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Where was Adam? He was with her. That's what I mean by his conspicuous silence. His silence is deafening. And friends, I want to make an application that might surprise you a bit. Just as an aside. Just as an aside. This scene and Adam's responsibility to guard his wife is not unconnected to the command given to elders and pastors that elders are, Titus 1.9, to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke or refute those who contradict. As those appointed by Christ to minister on his behalf to his bride, his church, they must protect her as Christ would. Elders are to stop the mouths of wicked liars in the church. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 1.10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a stretch. But listen to how Paul speaks to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Sadly, many elders and pastors are often like Adam as they sheepishly, out of fear of man, allow the serpent to lie to Christ's bride. Oh, may the Lord forgive our elders wherever we've been like Adam. I'm sure we have. Wherever it's happened, may God forgive us. And may he keep us faithful. Adam failed here. We fail here. But thanks be to God that our Lord Jesus Christ did not fail here. That leads us to Christ's temptation. Look at Matthew 4. I want you to consider the glory of this passage. It's marvelous in light of what we've just seen in Genesis 3. And if you read through the Old Testament in light of what we see in Israel. And I want to compare Adam and Christ for a moment. And to some extent, I want to compare Adam and Christ by way of Israel. What do I mean by that? Adam is called the son of God. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Israel is called the son of God. The firstborn son, the firstborn son. Exodus chapter 4, Hosea 11.1, 1, and in Matthew 2. Israel is referred to as the son of God. Christ is called the son of God. So even as we walk this temptation, we're going to see, I think, a comparison between Adam, Israel, and Christ. Adam failing, Israel failing, Christ succeeding, being faithful. So look with me at Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's being led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now Mark 1.13 adds this note. Don't have to turn there. Just listen. Mark adds, and he was with the wild animals. There's a comparison there between him and Adam, isn't there? And these are the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus was subduing the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him, and you hear a comparison with Adam starting up. It's getting going. Jesus is being compared with Adam as the firstborn son of God, Luke 3.38. That's the end of the genealogy before you get to the temptation of Christ in Luke 4. And with Israel as the firstborn son of God, Matthew 2.14. Now look at 
Matthew 4, 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus did not eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Moses at Sinai. Remember I said there's a comparison with Israel and with Adam. Just like Moses at Sinai. Moses did not do so as he received the covenant, Deuteronomy 9, 9. And he did not do so. I want you to hear this. Moses did not eat and drink for 40 days and 40 nights because he was interceding for Israel because she had committed sin while he was on the mountain receiving the law. Deuteronomy 9.18. So listen to Deuteronomy 9.18. Here's Moses. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Why? Because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. What was Moses doing for Israel? He was interceding for her friends. What is Matthew indicating to you that when Jesus doesn't eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights that he's doing for you? Now look at Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The tempter, the slandering enemy, lobs his opening challenge where? At the word of God. If, notice the conditional phrase, if you are the Son of God. Do you hear the conditional clause? If you are. Satan is questioning God's word. Why do I say that? Look at the scene just before. Matthew three sixteen. Just go up a couple verses. Matthew three sixteen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And what's Satan's opening challenge? If you are the son of God. Now let's look at the first temptation in Jesus' answer. Look back at verse 3 and 4 again. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation of Christ is to make bread and eat it to satisfy your own hunger. The Lord, I don't know if you are aware of this, it's pointing us to us by what Jesus cites from. The Lord tested Israel with hunger to see if she would trust him and his promises and his word. We read about it in Exodus 17. I'm not going to have you turn there. Do you believe I'm good? And do you believe I'll provide for my people? That's the test. Do you believe I'm with you and I'm good? Now, Israel often complained in the face of such hunger, and they ceased trusting God's good word. They ceased trusting that God is good. Adam and Eve are doing the same thing when they fail to believe that God has provided for them, that his word is to be trusted, that God is not withholding some good from them. In contrast, Jesus trusts God's word. That's why he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now let's look at the second temptation, Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is interesting. Here's the temptation. Do you really believe God is good and he's with you? He's with you and he's good. Why do I know that? Israel had failed to trust God's care for her. She had failed to believe that God was with her and he is good. In that scene in Exodus 17, they're without water. That is point two. And they're thirsty and they complain against the Lord. And Israel actually tested the Lord there, put the Lord to the test, 
and charged the Lord with being absent when this was said. Listen, this is a phrase right from Exodus 17. Is the Lord among us or not? Israel did not trust that God was among them and that he would care for them. Thus, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16, where Moses is telling the second generation of Israel, don't be like your fathers. Pointing out that he will not test the Lord. Jesus will not test the Lord as Israel did. That's why he's quoting that. He knows the Lord is with him. Now, I can't pass by on one interesting note. If you notice the quotation, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is actually quoting, and rightly about the Messiah, he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He's quoting from there about the Christ. I mean, in this sense, Satan's got his hermeneutics somewhat correct. He knows the passages about the Christ. However, he omits 91.13, and it's an interesting omission. I just want you to hear it. Listen to verse 11, 12, and 13. You'll hear where he's quoting, and you'll hear what he leaves out. For he will command his angels concerning you, the Messiah, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes all that, but listen to what he leaves out. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Unlike Adam and Israel, Jesus will smash or crush the serpent's head. And in this scene, he's beginning to do just that. Beginning to do just that. Look at Matthew 4, 8 through 11. Last temptation, his third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The third temptation is basically, worship me and I'll give you all things. Change the Lord to whom you have allegiance. That's fundamental to what Satan is coming to Adam and Eve with. Change the Lord to whom you will have allegiance. Jesus replies with Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Israel was supposed to heed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. And they were supposed to know that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. But sadly, Israel chased after false gods. Well, Adam and Eve were presented with a false Lord as well. Satan offered himself up. Follow my voice and not God's. Jesus would not give in to such a temptation as Adam and Eve did. Adam failed as the son of God. Israel failed as the son of God. We fail, but Jesus, the son of God, did not fail. Adam did not speak the truth to his wife, the serpent, nor to his own heart as the prophet. Christ is the true prophet, God's final word. God's word is his food, and he is the word of God, and he always speaks the truth to his bride, the church. Adam did not protect his wife, the weaker vessel, entrusted to his care by covenantal bond. He didn't protect her from the serpent. He did not exercise the priestly duties to guard the garden and intercede for his wife. He did not protect his wife nor his own heart. Christ is the great high priest who was ever obedient to God's word, who laid down his life for us and who ever intercedes for us. He is the priest who watches over us until he brings us all the way home. Adam did not subdue that ancient serpent. As the king, he was clearly created to be. Rather, he allowed the serpent to subdue his wife and himself. Christ, as our king, has crushed the head of that ancient serpent and will soon put Satan under our feet. Adam was placed in a garden of Eden by the Spirit to be tested. And due to his failure or his sin, he was driven into the wilderness away from God's holy mountain and bountiful garden. 
Christ was driven into the wilderness to be tested. And due to his obedience, his righteousness, he ascended the holy mountain to dwell with God. And because Christ was obedient for us, and because Christ tasted the penalty of death on the cross for us, because he conquered sin and death in his resurrection for us, because he ascended the holy mountain to the right hand of God for us, we are forgiven our sins, we are counted righteous in him, and we are seated with him in heavenly places, and he will soon return to judge the living and the dead and take us home to be with him in that garden forever. May we look to him and be thankful. In sovereign grace, by grace through faith, let us resist the devil. To quote Matthew Henry one last time, let us therefore, in opposition to Satan, always think well of God as the best good and think ill of sin as the worst of evils. Thus, let us resist the devil and he will flee from us. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to resist the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. Help us to trust in Jesus, your Son, who was obedient and faithful where we were not, who resisted Satan's temptations, who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin and who paid the penalty on the cross for our sins. May we trust to him. May we look to him in faith. May we be thankful for him. Father, we ask that we would resist the devil, that we would see God as the best good and sin as the worst evil. And thus resist the devil when he flees from us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.